Hi, my name is Jennifer Chedister. Um, and when I was reading through 2 Corinthians this summer to get an overview before the study, chapters 3 to 5 kind of stuck out to me. And I th when Pam said, what would you like to do or what chapter would you like to do, I was thinking, I'll do one of those three. And she said two of them were already taken. So I said, okay, I'll do chapter three. <laughs> and then when I went back to read it again more deeply, I thought, why did I love this chapter so much the first time around? <laughs> There's a lot of confusing stuff in this chapter. <laughs> but then as I started to dig deeper, the chapter to, in, the, in depth, I started to uncover some of the golden nuggets of truth. And I hope to share some of those with you tonight and hope you are as impacted by this chapter as I ended up being. Mm. This chapter is part of what some Bible scholars call the Great Digression. Uh, it's where Paul gets to a thought about God, and he stops to marvel about God and who he is. There are several throughout his writings, but this is the longest one. This one started in chapter 2, verse 14, and continues until chapter 7, verse 4. So think about this. Do we take the time to stop and marvel about God and praise him? I just think it's cool that Paul does this. Uh, one of the emphasis of this chapter is comparing the New Covenant with the Old Covenant. Before, a person's relationship to God was based on keeping the law. But the New Covenant totally changes that, throws everything off balance. And this is a huge change of mindset for the Jews. In fact, it's radical. So let's get started. Verses 1 to 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you, or from you? You ourselves are a letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the human heart. So letters of introduction or recommendation at this time were very common. They kind of proved authenticity. So when people came, they would come with a letter to say that they're legit, basically. Um, and there have been some people that were saying that Paul came without any such letter. Uh, we talked about this a little bit more a couple chapters ago. They were saying he needed, they wanted him to prove that he was uh, authentic. Um, but Paul's saying... I don't really need a letter because people themselves having faith in Christ proves my authenticity. As someone put it this morning, they were living letters. Paul and his companions, furthermore, did not come with human authorization, but they came with divine. For apart from Christ, the Corinthians would not have believed and be following him. In verse 3, Paul says, This letter was written by the Holy Spirit on their hearts. In the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments were written on stone. But in the New Covenant, God is writing the law on the hearts of believers, and under Paul's ministry, they were becoming living letters of recommendation for him. This is exactly what God promised in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Note that it's God who's doing all the work. Paul is saying, you, the believing Corinthians, are a letter. Christ is the one who deserves the glory, though, not Paul, not us. Because more than a letter from Paul, they are a letter from Christ, and he's the one who deserves the glory. On to verses 4 to 6. 
Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul goes on to say that their confidence is not in themselves, but they are completely dependent upon Christ for all that they are and all that they do. And without them, without him, they are nothing. Even in chapter 2, remember, Paul cried out, Who is sufficient for these things? God is the one who supplies us with infinite resources, and he's the one who makes us sufficient, which means that we have total inability in and of ourselves, but total ability in Christ. The word for minister is the Greek, in the Greek, is in the first part of chapter 6, verse 6, not chapter 6, verse 6, is diakonos, which means servant, which further shows that we are not ministering independently, but we're under the authority of Christ. In verse 6, it also says, the letter kills. What does this phrase mean? Well, John Piper points out that in context, in verse 7, Paul's referring to letters on stone. And in verse 3, he mentions tablets of stone, both referring to the Ten Commandments specifically, or that can often mean more generally the Mosaic law, so the whole of the law. So the letter kills means the law kills. This is consistent with Romans 7.10, which says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The law kills because we can never be good enough to keep every law, and breaking even one law makes us sinful and unworthy and unable to come into God's presence. Furthermore, the law has no ability to change our hearts. When he says the Spirit gives life, he has in mind the work of the Spirit of God, that the work that the Spirit of God does to change our human hearts. And as Pastor Tim often says, he gives us the one to to do the ought to. In other words, what letters of stone cannot do Letters on stone cannot do. The spirit working in our heart can do, namely give life, spiritual life, eternal life. Are we grateful for the spirit giving us life? Moving on to verses 7 to 11. Now, if the ministry of death carved on letters of stone came to us with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if, it was, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what is permanent will have glory. Now, when I first read that, I was a little confusing. So... We're going to break it down just a little bit. <laughs> verses 7 and 8, the ministry of death, that's referring again to the Old Covenant, refer referencing the letters carved on stone, the law which kills. So there's the death, okay, which we just went over in verse 6. But this still came with glory, such glory that the Israelites could not even look at Moses' face when, after he received it and had been in the Lord's presence. So the word for glory means beauty and splendor. These words can be interchangeably used. So if the old covenant came with such glory, how much more glorious is the new covenant? 
Joffrey Grogan's one of the books we gave as a we were had of as a reference book given to the people presenting, and he dives a little bit deeper into the word glory. He's saying it has two aspects. First is the weightiness of God's self revelation, His graciously showing Himself to us. Second is light, and this is kind of cool. Light is both revealing; it helps us to see, but is also concealing because it can be so bright that we're blinded by it. So do we really appreciate and realize God's glory? And I think on this side of heaven, we don't, we'll never fully appreciate it, but there's so much, God has so much glory in it. This, it's just cool to think about his glory and what that means. In verses 9 to 11, the idea of moving from lesser glory to greater glory is repeated twice. And actually, it's mentioned in just a little bit different context. Again, in verse uh, 18, which was the memory verse, if you remember, if you learned it, where it talks about being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Once in verse 9, the glory of ministry of righteousness will surely be greater than the glory of the ministry of condemnation. And then in verse 11, the glory of what is permanent will surely be greater than the glory of what is fading away. Therefore, Paul is sure that those who become part of the new covenant relationship to God by trusting Christ and thereby receive the Spirit will behold God's divine glory, which vastly surpasses the glory of the old covenant. Verse 10 is kind of stuck in the middle of these two, um, and it's noting that the glory of the new covenant is so much greater that the glory of the old covenant doesn't seem so glorious at all anymore. Now remember that repetition of scripture is the way that points are emphasized. Like when God is described as holy, 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 things being repeated three times is kind of like the highest level. So it's repeated twice in these, this small section. And then, like I said, it's kind of mentioned again in verse 18. So it's almost repeated third time. So it was really important to them that this is really different. It was really radical, a big, huge change for the Jews. And the old covenant was also very long awaited for. If you think about it, uh, the Old Covenant was established with Moses about 3,500 years ago, and the New Covenant was established with Jesus around 2,000 years ago. So they waited 1,500 years for the establishment of the New Covenant. All right, continuing with verses 12 to 15. Since we have a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So clearly here, there's a relationship between hope and boldness. Since it clearly says, because we have hope, we are very bold. All right, so boldness is a fruit or a result of hope. What is this hope? Hope for gospel victory. Like what Denise pointed out at the end of chapter 2, that God leads us in triumphant procession. Like Pastor Kyle said on Sunday, God always wins. Okay? So God the Father has chosen the people for himself. God the, sin, the Son has died for sinners. And God the Holy Spirit is going to win those people and give them new hearts. So if you have such hope, you will be very bold. So what is boldness? You have to take the easy way sometimes. According to questions.com, it's courage to act or speak fearlessly. Okay, but Piper goes a little bit deeper into this. He said there's three aspects of courage. Courage to be fearless in the face of persecution. 
courage to be unashamed of the gospel, that you are unashamed that you are a Christian and unashamed of Christ. And the third one is courage to be direct and straightforward when communicating about things concerning God. So are we bold for Christ? In verses 13 to 15, Paul contrasts his boldness with Moses, saying he's not like Moses, who veiled his shining face so that the Israelites wouldn't see the fading glory. Grogan makes an excellent point that there is something awesome about the revelation of a God who is holy, and we do well to be afraid. And Piper goes on to point out that Paul sees this veil covering Moses' face as a symbol of the fact that the people of the Old Covenant, by and large, could not understand fully that the glory of the covenant was only temporary. It was passing away. It was preparatory for a new and more glorious covenant. And as Moses concealed the fading glory of his face, so even to this day, Paul says in verse 14, the true significance of the old covenant is veiled. Its true significance was to point to beyond itself to the day when the Messiah would come and atone for sin and the law would be written on the heart by the Holy Spirit. Whenever the Old Covenant is read, there seems to be a veil over the reading, or as verse 15 says, a veil over the mind or heart of the listener, meaning the veil keeps the person from seeing the reality and the truth, the full light. Only Christ is the one who can lift the veil. How wonderful it is that we live in a time where the veil has been lifted. Finishing with verses 16 to 18. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed from the same image into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. So verse 16, the Lord is the one who removes the veil, which gives us freedom, as noted in verse 17, enables us to behold his glory in verse 18. So they're all connected. Uh, Grogan points out that the new covenant is essentially a covenant of divine action from start to finish. How awesome is that? Furthermore, the old covenant was made with a group, the Israelites. And the new covenant, although the group, the church, does not lack importance, the relationship is also offered to the inner, not like, let me start that again. The relationship offered is also gives inner knowledge of God to the individual believer. So it's to the group, but also to the individual. The veil being removed gives us the freedom to see the all-surpassing glory, splendor, beauty of God. Piper notes, if we want freedom from our blindness to the beauty of God, we must have the spirit. We are slaves to worldly substitutes for beauty. Um, until the Spirit takes away the veil, and our mind, until the Spirit takes away the veil from our minds and grants us to see with joy the beauty, glory, and splendor of our Lord. Verse 18: Once our faces are unveiled, we can see His glory, and we have freedom to be transformed into His image, as noted previously in verse 17. When a person turns to Jesus Christ as Lord and opens themselves up to the the liberate, I like how this is said, the liberating rule of of the Spirit, two of our deepest longings become fulfilled. It's granted that the eyes of our heart can really see a captivating and satisfying divine glory, and we are changed by it. We always tend to become like people we admire, right? 
And when the Spirit grants us to see and admire the Lord of glory, we inevitably become more like Him. And we become transformed into His image. And the more we become like Him, the more clearly we see Him, and the greater our capacity to delight in Him. When we think about freedom, let's face it, we think freedom is doing what we want, when we want it. The problem is, we're sinful, and what we want isn't always what God wants. <laughs> How, so, as we are transformed into His image, our desires become His desires, and we become like Him. And as we become like Him, we are free to do what we want, because what we want will also be what He wants. That is true freedom. May we be free indeed, by His grace and by the power of His Holy Spirit.